Greetings, friends. This is Dr. Mark Sharona, and I want to welcome you to the Edge Podcast, where all things theological, psychological, spiritual, and cultural will be explored so that you and I might understand the times and know what to do about them. Enjoy. This particular podcast is entitled Change or Die, Faith for the Future. I want to talk to you about uh, the parable of the unjust judge and the widow in just a few moments. However, in order to get there, I want to begin by using something in the current culture that we can all relate to. The Nestle Company advertises something that provides hearty satisfaction within reach. In fact, they guarantee you will be heartily satisfied almost immediately. What am I talking about? Nestle has made millions and millions of dollars on their microwavable Hot Pockets. Hot Pockets come in all sorts of uh, flavors and uh, they guarantee within a matter of less than two minutes you can have a pepperoni pizza in a pocket, a Philly steak and cheese in a pocket, a mozzarella, pizza in a pocket. You, you can do it all and hot pockets. Well, what we want to understand is that there's a lot of hot pockets in the world in which we live globally. There are places and things and situations that are erupting in a way that are pretty intense. As a matter of fact, if you were to leave a hot pocket in the microwave a little too long, it would explode. And so it really is a hot pocket. And so while a microwave can guarantee a hot and delicious meal in a matter of seconds, the challenge with a microwave is that it doesn't heat everything evenly. Um, It doesn't cause everything to be an even temperature. You can have in something you microwaved unpleasant coldness in one spot and real hot overly hot spots in another place in the food. The other thing about microwaves is you can't brown something. You can't make it nice and crisp. You're either going to discover that if you put it in the microwave too long, it's going to explode or it's going to become hard as a rock. And also microwave can make food pretty dry, pretty tasteless and quite unsavory. So even though we claim we enjoy microwave cooking, sometimes We need to remember that it takes time to cook a savory and satisfying meal. And in a day of instance where fast food has become the preference of the day, we need to realize that in the signs of our times, we are expecting everything to be instant. And we translate that even into our walk with Christ and fail to realize that it has taken the Lord 2,000 years of history with the resurrection and the ascension to begin to unfold what new creation is all about. Jesus is calling us from the future to the future. And there is a structure to the future. There is what my dear friend, Dr. Leonard Sweet calls an anatomy of the future. And yet the church has proven again and again in the current culture to be thoroughly inadequately prepared for the future. I have often used the term COD in my life for cash on delivery when 
something gets delivered to me. However, COD also can mean change or die. And the future is on the way, and the church can't afford to resist change. It has to change or it's going to die. Now, the church itself, that which Christ died for, which he ascended and is building in the last 2,000 years, it will never die. However, church, in terms of what we have built, may not survive the future. In other words, not every tribe that came out of the land of promise makes it all the way to the holy city in Revelation 21 for various reasons. The ordering of the tribes in the book of Revelation is different. So too, over the years, there are many sects in Christendom that once were thriving that no longer exist. And there are denominations that are crumbling around us very quickly. And because we live in a microwave culture where we want everything in an instant, we fail to realize that if we're going to embrace the future, we have to learn from the past. And again, my dear friend Len Sweet will tell us that unless we learn from the past, we cannot lean into the future. The church isn't our idea, it's God's idea. And the challenge is we've turned the church into all sorts of things it was never intended to be. And we have failed to realize what the church has actually been called to be, to do and to obtain. And therefore much of God's intention for the earth isn't accomplished because we get sidetracked by all sorts of things that provide us satisfaction, at least we think we do, uh, in the instant because we want everything microwavable. And we don't want to sit down to a ongoing banquet that has taken thousands of years to prepare. In Isaiah 26, we're told that the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet uh, with fine aged wine and many other things. And it takes time to make fine aged wine. I grew up Italian in New York and Ernest and Giulio Gallo, the Gallo brothers who were winemakers as a family for generations, often would use this slogan, we serve no wine before it's time. And I am persuaded that we are living in an era where there are so many global eruptions and hot pockets that are at the very center of clashes in cultures, clashes amongst kingdoms, that if we fail to understand the times and know what to do, we will repeat the unwanted past instead of create with Christ the desired future. Now, the future is going to come whether we go there or not. And for some of us, it's going to come by default simply because we do nothing. However, we're not called to live life by default. We're called to live it by divine design. And we have a part to play in this journey. So stay with me because I want to read you the parable of the unjust judge and the widow. We all know this story. However, perhaps we can hear it with new ears and see it with new eyes as we allow the story to unfold in our imagination and allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify it to us, to our memories and to our intuitions as it relates to faith for the future. It says in Luke 18, verse 1 and following, Then Jesus told them a parable to show them they should always pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected people. 
there was also a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but later on he said to himself, though I neither feared God nor have regard for people, yet because this widow keeps on bothering me, I will give her justice, or in the end she will wear me out by her unending pleas. The Lord said, listen to what the unrighteous judge says. Won't God give justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long to help them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, what we want to begin to look at, and I want to connect some dots for us from a semiotic perspective. The word semiotic comes from the Greek word semion, which has to do with signs. And those are both visual as well as linguistic. There are all sorts of cultural signs that we need to pay attention to. I gave you one just now as an example, Nestle's Hot Pockets. And I use it as a metaphor to describe Hot Pockets in the current global eruptions in culture that are more than just nation rising against nation, but issues that humanity is wrestling with as we've entered into the rapid paced, accelerated change of the 21st century. And in that regard, when we talk about signs, signs point to something, they signify or signify something, and until we see what they signify, we can't rightly interpret them. If I were to invite you to come to Orlando, and you have never been to Orlando, but you've heard of Disney World, and you and I get in a car from the airport and drive in a westerly direction on the Beltway called 528 and then loop on to Inter Interstate 4 heading west, we will come to the Lake Buena Vista exit eventually, which is the first Disney World exit on Interstate 4. If you have never seen Disney World and yet you've heard of it and you see the sign and demand that I stop the car so that you can jump out and climb the sign, you have now mistaken the sign for what the sign signifies or signifies. And a lot of times we do that with signs. We misinterpret signs because we think the sign is the thing when it's simply pointing to something. The sign signifies or signifies that there is a place called Disney World. But the signified thing is when you get to Disney World itself and the sign looks nothing like Disney World. It's a mere flat two-dimensional object with a green background and iridescent white letters that glow in the dark if you're driving even at night. But the sign Disney World that signifies or signifies that there is a place called Disney World is not the signified thing, Disney World itself. So understanding how to interpret signs is crucial to the church's future. Because there are things that want to unfold that cannot unfold out of passive uh, and inactive ways of simply saying, que sera, sera. I grew up hearing Doris Day sing that on the radio 
over and over again. Kesara, sera, whatever will be, will be. It's a fatalistic approach to the future that is as, as melodious and as pretty as Doris Day's voice uh, is, um, it's a poor way to build a theology on how we approach the future. The future is coming, whether we want it to or not. Now, Kesara, sera is for those that have nothing to do with influencing the future. However, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 to 23, informs us, the Apostle Paul informs us that the future belongs to us, and we have a part to play in its unfolding. Now, that doesn't diminish in any way the sovereignty of God. It, in fact, brings us into the awareness that the sovereign God has invited us to participate with him in what wants to unfold. And for that reason, Jesus says the Holy Spirit, among the many things that he does and are attributed to him as he is given to us as the ultimate gift of the eschaton of the age to come, because he is the promise of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit, according to John 16 verse 13 will disclose to us what is to come. He will give us previews of coming attractions of what wants to unfold. Sadly, most people reduce John 16 13 to an any minute rapture. Well, it's like Hot Pockets. It's a microwave message that's a convenient way to escape the challenges that we look at on a daily basis that are taking place at an accelerated fashion all around us and all around the world. And yet people have expected that to happen for 2,000 years, and we still fall prey to, I'm going to find a great escape instead of dealing with the issues and being effective and being relevant to the times and relevant to the gospel. And I think this parable of the unjust judge and the widow woman is profoundly prophetic and a sign to the church even now. And what the, what the parable, first of all, anytime you read about a widow in scripture, you want to begin to think, where are the mentions of widows in the Bible before we get here? How would a first century Palestinian rabbi think about the metaphor of a widow? Well, we could start with Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, a Gentile woman who lived in Jezebel's hometown for whom the, dra the drought and the famine had an equal impact on her ability to survive, and she was making her last meal for her and her son, who represented her future, that they were going to die. They wouldn't have a future. And yet Elijah, the prophet of God, the prophet of Israel, crosses the Jordan and exiles himself by the word of the Lord from the promised land and brings with him the history-making, history-shaping prophetic word of Yahweh. And in the house of a Gentile widow, betrothes her to Yahweh, where provision is given so that she and her son, who represents the builder of the family name and is her guarantee of a future, will live for many days until the Lord sends rain on the earth. And I can go through many other instances of widows in the Old Testament, but ultimately the Gentile widow represents the Gentile bride of Christ uh, that is without a voice and without authority and without a future, without Jesus. And so when Jesus here tells this parable about a widow woman, I'd like to suggest to you that if you think biblically, he's talking about the church, the ecclesia, the bride. 
And he is juxtaposing this bride in the presence of an unjust culture where she as a widow has lost her voice. In that culture, which was an honor-shame culture, a widow is the most shamed and vulnerable person alive. She cannot even appear in court on her own unless there are no male representatives to stand there on her behalf. In that day, women didn't appear in court under normal circumstances. If a woman does appear in court, the only conclusion we can make from history is that there was no male in her family that could appear on her behalf to represent her, implying that they were all dead. And so the widow is totally alone. In fact, the word for widow comes from a picture word implying totally alone. At the same time, this totally alone widow has to face an unjust judge. Now, the thing about the judge is that the judge, we're told in the parable, is one who neither feared God nor respected people. Now, that phrase, respected people, actually means that this judge cannot be made to feel ashamed. Again, this is an honor-shame culture, and the parable that Jesus is telling is letting us know that in this honor-shame culture, this judge has a status in the culture of honor and perceived value, and at the same time, he is such a narcissist and so self-enclosed that he has no empathy, no compassion, and can't even be moved by anything that takes place because he couldn't care less, neither about people nor about God. And so what you have here is a judge that represents the most corrupt aspects of an honor-shame culture. See, we live in the Western world where we're on it. We, we live in a guilt-ridden culture. And this is, this is an aside, but I think it's important. We tend to think people are going to get saved by making them feel guilty, which in actual fact is really a poor way to share the gospel with others. The honor-shame culture is, is something we need to understand because the gospel was written in an honor-shame culture. And when we begin to realize the issues at the core of human dignity that are tied to honor and shame, we just might begin to ask God for wisdom as to how to reach people in terms of the level of their sense of shame and dishonor and why Jesus' ministry was so significant because he ministered to those who were considered less than honorable, the outcasts, the least, the last, and the lost. 
And so here is a judge who is entrepo is the Greek word. He cannot be put to shame. He refuses to allow anyone to shame him. He has no empathy, no concern whatsoever. And yet there's a widow woman who was totally alone and the most shamed person in the culture. And again, we're talking about a type and shadow here of the church in relationship to justice issues and issues of, of, of life itself and having a validity about the future. And yet the judge says that this widow is so persistent that it's going to change the way he interacts because of all the different uh, plaintiffs he's had to deal with. This woman is persistent, but that word persistent or importunate, as one translation says, literally means shameless persistence, shameless persistence. In other words, here she is in the presence of a judge who refuses to be put to shame because he is held in high honor, even though he cares for no one, but he's got a place of prestige and authority in the culture. Here's a woman who has no honor, therefore she is a shamed person, and yet she is shameless in the way she approaches the bench. So much so that she shamelessly persists in demanding he take notice of what it is that is missing in her life and that she might get an ear and a hearing so that he will do what will be right for her. And he says, she's about to wear me out. And that word wear me out is very interesting because the metaphor is she's going to give me a black eye, but the real issue is she's going to blacken my face. And the term blacken my face there uh, in terms of being wounded and hit and bruised actually in that culture meant she's going to put me to shame. So this refusing to be shamed judge is going to be put to shame by a shamed widow who shamelessly will persist until her petition is answered. This is really important because the judge who is shameless and incapable of sensing the meaning of his conduct towards others and who boasts narcissistically about it in verse four comes to admit that his face is going to be in a heck of a lot of trouble if he doesn't find a way to get rid of this widow. She has more power than he cares to admit and she can be his undoing. She is a troublemaker. The church is called to be a voice to that which wants to keep it in a place of impoverishment and shame. Now listen, here's what Jesus is saying. If a widow with no voice in a culture where there is a wealth situation which situated insensitive, narcissistic, ill-mannered, unrefined judge, how much more can a sensitive and loving father hear the cry of his elect and bring to them what they need. Now, listen carefully as I bring this to a close. I wanna give you things to think about. We need to have faith for the future because the way Jesus closes this parable is that he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? In other words, at the second coming, 
Will the Son of Man find faith in the earth, or will he find a church that refuses to ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking until God brings justice to victory in every area of his promise according to his covenant? In other words, how does this happen? Well, the church is the widowed bride of Jehovah. In Romans 6, we who were dead in sin and in our transgressions found that our Adam, our last Adam, married us in our sin. And in Romans 7, through the baptism of Romans 6, he takes us into death and dies with us. He doesn't divorce us. He goes with us all the way to the grave. And yet when we are justified, he raises us from the dead with him and weds us to himself in a whole new way as our bridegroom and as the son who is the head of the church. He brings the bride through his death, burial, and resurrection into the very immediate presence of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit and seats us with him at the Father's right hand far above all rule, authority, and power and every name that is named and through the ingroanings of the Spirit within us and the intercession of the Son of God in the presence of the Father, we cry out to a good and loving heavenly parent who has made secure our covenant and tells us that his promises are sure, his hope is steadfast, and that he will crush Satan under our feet. And Jesus is calling us from the future to the future with the confidence that he has been promised that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The widow has been wed to the bridegroom. And now through the intercession of the spirit who lives within us and the bridegroom who is our high priest and the apostle of our confession before the good, good father, by the power of the triune God's grace, love, and mercy, We persist in asking and keep on asking, seeking and keep on seeking, knocking and keep on knocking until God fulfills all that he has promised. The change that needs to take place in the church, lest the church in our tribes die because the future is coming is to tap into what wants to unfold, lay hold of the promise of God, because the future is a promise, not a prediction, and contend earnestly until we see the goodness of God in the land of the living, which is why we continue to cry, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that all the way until the heavens open, and the Son of Man descends and consummates the kingdom, and so shall we forever be with the Lord. 